Hello and welcome to episode 19 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. So this episode will be going out on the 5th of January, that's what the date will be today, or it was the 5th of January when this episode went out, if you're listening to it afterwards, which means you'll have had your Christmas. And I hope that you have all had a fantastic Christmas and New Year, um, and it's brought a little bit of joy into what has otherwise been uh, kind of an antisocial year, really, in a, in a physical sense at least. Um, and I hope you all got some nice Christmas presents, because after all, that's what Christmas is about, isn't it? I'm, I'm only joking, of course it's not. It's about... Um, the best present I got was a griddle pan. And I think that means that I'm getting old if I get bought griddle pans. I mean, I asked for it. Does That, that definitely means that I'm getting old if I'm getting bought griddle pans that I asked for. Anyway, we're going to move on. Okay, so the episode today is part two of my conversation with... Um, recording engineer and console designer Malcolm Toft and in this episode we talk a little bit more about the uh, sort of gear side of things and the console design and how we got into all of that kind of stuff. Um, another really really interesting conversation and I will see you on the other side. Here we go, enjoy Malcolm Toft part two. were obviously hugely responsible for the A-Range console at yeah. Trident. So how, how did it come about that... Yeah, well, that was another interesting story because I, I, I became studio manager after about three years. Uh, and they were always very appreciative of the role that I'd taken at Trident, you know, as the management Barry Norman, you know, like Mr. McArthur Malcolm kind of thing. They were all very good like that. And we weren't happy with the consoles that we had two sound techniques consoles and we in particular weren't happy with the second one when we went from eight track to 16 track we got a new 16 track console from sound techniques the old eight track went into a mixing room that we set up on the next floor and we just weren't happy with the 16 track one it was poorly put together um and that, the reason for that was Sound Techniques had taken on a big contract with CTS Studios to supply a lot of consoles, and I think their eye was off the board. So we weren't particularly happy with it. We wanted to go to 24 track, and our control room was quite small, very small in fact. We only had a space of five feet to get the console in. It was up on a riser. Oh, okay. Uh, and we always had a remote pack base, so we didn't have a lot of space. So we wanted to go 24 track. So, Christ, you've got 24 monitors, you've got all this stuff. How are we going to get it in? So I was tasked with finding, looking at consoles, other console alternatives. But at that time, there was Neve, a company called Helios, a company called Kadak, uh, and that was pretty well it, really, in the UK. We rolled out the Helios because it was a wraparound-type console, which wouldn't fit for us. Um, the Kadak wasn't really for us. There were, there were, again, things on it that it was a little bit overcomplicated. And the, again, the seminal moment was, and I can remember it to this day, Barry and I went up to Cambridge to meet with all the people at Need. Now, we were a very prestigious studio by this time, you know, and Need wanted to sell a console to us. So they wined us and they dined us, and we ended up in this big boardroom. Uh, Rupert wasn't there, but there was a lady called Betty Harmer-Smith who was in charge of all their engineering side. And we sat down at this big table and started to discuss our needs for this console. And we said, well, you know, we want 24-track monitoring, we want this and we want that. 
And they couldn't provide 24 track monitoring. They only had 16 tracks. Uh, and they couldn't, and it was like, oh, can we modify this module to do it? Can we modify the 1073 to do And what struck me at that meeting was about six or seven people, salespeople, electronics people, engineering people. There was no one there who'd actually been a recording engineer. There was no one saying to us, oh, but if you route that through this thing or use that direct output or da da da, you can. There's nobody saying that. It was all about, can we modify this? Can we make this to do that? And we were driving back, and I can remember this to this day, driving back, Barry and I in the car, and we were quite quiet because, in a way, Neve was our last hope. And I said to Barry, I don't think we're going to, you know, we're going to get, I can't see Neve being able to do what you want because we wanted EQ on the monitor section as well. Because Roy Thomas Baker had said that when we get takes in from America, they're on the NAB characteristic, and our tape is CCIR, so that when they're played back without realigning the whole tape machine, there's a difference between the bass and the treble. You have to equalise them to make them sound. <laughs> yeah. So he wanted EQ on treble and bass, so that they could just, without having to change all the tape recording, just simulate what it would sound like. Good idea. But nobody could put EQ on the monitors. You know, didn't put EQ on the monitors. That was a anathema. Crikey, you didn't do that. One of the sections was flat. So this is again where Neve had problems with it. So we're driving back, and I, you know, we both said, "We're not going to get what we want from Neve, are we?" Uh, and I said, "No." And said, "What's the, what, you know, I don't know what we can do." But I've been playing around. I've been building my own mixer for a while because I'd always thought my career path would be to own my own studio. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that, build my own console, because we couldn't afford to go out and buy one. So I thought, well, if I've, I'd I'd always been interested in tinkering. I've been building, you know, a console at home for years and messing about. And we had at Trident Studios a very good maintenance guy called Barry Porter, who used to, you know, do all our maintenance and servicing. We always had a maintenance engineer on on tap at Trident Studios. So very thought he came down from the top floor and fixed it. Mm-hmm. And in my off times, I would sit with Barry and say, look, I'm trying to build this. And Barry was very knowledgeable in electronics, right? And he helped me with some of the circuitry. And I was, say, building this console at home. So we're driving home and, and, you know, Barry said, well, what are we going to do? And I, you know, 26 years of age, whatever I was at that time, I said, you know, one of these foolish moments, I think we could build our own console. And he said, really? I said, well, yeah. I said, there's Barry, you know, he's a very good electronics guy. And I've been talking to him and whatever, I think we could build our own console. So they said, well, because it's you, you know, we'll have a listen to it. So we went out and had a lunch room on it, and I said to Barry and Norman, I said, look, you know, I think we've got enough technical knowledge and certainly enough system knowledge. I'll do all the systems and everything else, you know, design all the feature sets and take care of all of that and the general building of it. And Barry can do the electronics. You know, I think we can, we can do it. So they took, again, a real chance, and they said, OK, we'll give you and Barry a year to build this console, and we'll sort of relieve Barry as much as we can of his duties. We'll give you a room on the top floor. You should go away and design this console. So we spoke to the engineers about the sources that they want. I did, you know, cunning layouts and this, and it's all the circuits the layouts were taking of the and we got a friend of Barry Sheffield's, uh, his flatmate, actually, Willie, um, to do all the mechanical design. So that's how we built first Trident A-Range, and it was ever only built as a, pro- as a one-off for the studio. But as we were building it, clients 
heard that we were building consoles, you know, building this console, and stop by and say, oh, how's it going? And I'll show them drawings and everything else. And before we knew it, there was Chippy Norton Studios that were opening up, um, uh, who were friends of Roy Thomas Baker, and a client of mine, John Congress, who wrote He's Gonna Step On You, the Happy Monday song. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, I recorded John Congress, and he was setting up a studio, and he said, could you build a console for me? So I used the designs that I would use for my own console at home, the one that I was going to build, <laughs> we took that the Trident B range. Wow. So I to management, I said, look, I've got a couple of orders come through if we want them, you know, how about setting up a company to make mixes? And that's what they did. They said, okay, we set up a mixer company and you'll be managing director of it and overseeing it all. And Barry can have shares as well. So they gave us a shareholding in the company and set me up as managing director to oversee it all. Uh, and uh, that's how we started Trident. And, and unfortunately, Barry left after a couple of years because he just couldn't take the sort of responsibility, if you like. He just wanted to be a designer and whatever. And so, but yeah, that's how we started Trident. And I mean, I look back on it, and it's crazy because the first session we ever did on the A-Ray was Elton John. <laughs> wow. Right, to finish this console all night. And it was half working. And the first bloody session we did was out and shot. I mean, you couldn't make it up, could you? Um, you know, unbelievable. Unfortunately, abandoned the session. <laughs> you know, we got the console working a few days after that. But you couldn't make this stuff up. You really couldn't. Amazing. That's on the road to making... I mean, to have the, the foresight... Uh, well, not only to have the foresight to... to sort of envisage putting something together like that um, and also be in the right place to have somebody who's willing to take the chance on you is uh, I know. unbelievable. I look back, I mean, you know, this wasn't just a small console. This was a groundbreaking console, you know. It had, it had it was within the space of five feet. You know, it had um, four-band EQ on every channel. It had EQ on the monitor section. It had, you know, six... I mean, it was a huge console of that day. It was... There was nothing like it on the market at all that even came close to it, you know. Uh, and when I look back on what we achieved in just over a year, it's pretty incredible, really. Pretty incredible. Mm. You know, I still don't know. And to have that bravado at that age, to say, yeah, yeah, we'll do this. Because it could have all fallen so flat. It really could. It could have so easily missed. But you, I mean, as the same with joining Trident and all that stuff, you you yeah. you took a risk and it's you know it's paid off. I mean, it's paid off. Yeah, you know. It's, you know, it's it's about I think again another thing I talked it's about having a bit of self belief. I think you have to believe in yourself, and at that time I did believe. I believed. Gen I never doubted for a second that we couldn't do this stuff. I never doubted for a second that I couldn't be up to the job at Trident. You know, I didn't have the experience. But I, I knew I could learn. I knew I was a good learner, and I knew that I could do it. And it was the same with building the console. I didn't have the experience, but I had belief, self-belief. And if you haven't got self-belief, you will fail. If you've got self-belief, no matter what the odds are, you will somehow succeed. I mean, that's a hugely important lesson. It <laughs> it's is. hugely it is. important. It's surprising to surprise how many people... We ought to have a certain amount of self-doubt, but if your self-belief overrides that... You know, you, you have to have a self, you have to have a healthy amount of self-doubt. You can't be so arrogant. <laughs> doesn't matter what happens, I will succeed. You've got to have that questioning. But if overriding, you fall on the side, you know, 70, 80 percent, 
yes, I do believe this is going to work. I believe that, you know, I'm going to make this happen. You know? Yeah. Then, then you've got a good chance of it happening. It, if you're 50-50, well, I'll give it a good shot. And if it comes off, it comes off. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You will not succeed. It's, I mean, it's absolute gold dust. And, uh, you know, of course, you've kept up with... I mean, your name and Trident has become synonymous with, yeah. with you know, sort of a extremely high quality equipment now, and you've kept up with, um, with the times, if you like. There's a lot of, yeah. um, you know, you continued building consoles, and you've you've yeah. made yeah. 500 series uh, equipment. Uh, yeah. What's your What's your take on 500 well, series? Um, I think again, I think it's a good format. I think I think depends what you're trying to do. Um, if you just want a simple system, then it gives you the flexibility of having different modules and different things that you can plug into. It's good for that. It's like analog plugins, you know, for want of a better word. Yeah. If you just want to have flavors that you can plug into, then I think it's, it's a good idea. You know, I, I think trouble is the world and his wife are now making modules for 500 series. There's so much choice out there. And that becomes really, really difficult, you know. Um, I, I, what I think is that, you know, genuine recording, you have to have front end. I think you've got to have analog front end. I know it sounds old school and everything else, but you've still got to get it into the box, whatever you do. And the more you can do before you get it into the box, the better. It's as simple as that. Do not rely on getting everything into a door and fixing it all in the door. You know, as I've said before, I mix as I go. To me, you have to have front end. Whether that's a console, whether that's some um, modules, whatever it might be, you need to process the sound on the way in and get the sounds pretty well right. Do not think, oh, yeah, the bass sound isn't quite right, but I'll fix it in the door. You, you can't leave that to chance. I never like to leave something to chance. You know? I think we're seeing uh, currently with music, there's a big... Uh, I would say there's it's an interesting time for both of those takes on it and you know I read a, an interview that you did with Sound on Sound back in 94 um so that's what 16 wow. is it, oh no it's more than 16 26 years ago 26 years ago yeah wow and you know they were questioning one of the questions they asked you then was uh, the, about the relevance of a recording console and yeah. here you are we're almost 30 years later well um, but you, I mean, they're still clearly important because we're still oh, talking about them. <laughs> yeah, no, the great thing actually, we've gone through this evolution. You know, there was a time back in the early nineties I couldn't sell an analog console to save my life because it's oh, unless it's digital, you know, we don't want to know. There is a very nice cohabitation now between analog and digital. People don't found on analog consoles now and go, oh, that's old school. You know, we want digital. People realise that there is a benefit. There's that touch and feel of an analog console. There's that thing of sitting behind the console and moving the faders and just that tactile feel that you cannot replace by being inside the box. You just don't get that tactile feel. So it depends what you want. You know, if you're working at home, you're on your own, etc., then fine, you can work in the box and whatever. But if you're working with other people and you want that tactile feel and that you're mixing, there's nothing better really than to push faders up and down. So if we you know? almost swing back round to to where we started, the the course that you've you've put together, um, yeah. I've you know I've made some notes on a, a couple of the things that that you touch on on the course that I think are really important and and almost move move on from where we've just uh, what we've just been speaking about. That 
you know, when I started recording, I started recording with a, uh, you know, digital preamps and it's, you know, all my, the only control you have is to set a level and that's kind yeah. of it. And then, uh, you have, there's all these words and phrases that get banded about like, um, gain structure and dynamic range and headroom yeah. that as yeah. a young, you know, a young producer or a recording engineer, if you like, you, there's no way of understanding them with no, that equipment. Absolutely not. I have, I have this big thing about um, digital recording, about CBFS, you know, because it, it's such a movable feat. CBFS is a term that's um, used by the manufacturers of digital recording to set their own levels. In the analogue world, there, there are set levels. There's 0 dBm, which is 0.775 volt, and plus 4, which is 0 VU, which is 1.225 volt. You know where you are with analog. You know where you are that, you know, when your meters read zero, you're reading plus four dBm, and you know what that level is, okay? The moment you go into a converter, you don't know where you are because that zero dBfs can be whatever the manufacturer of the converter box wants it to be. And I found this out. I ran my own studio down in Devon some years ago. I, I went back to recording in the early 20s. I moved down to Devon, had a big basement. I thought, I'm going to turn this into a studio. So I did this. I put one of my consoles in there. And the first thing I bought back in the early 20s was a Mackie. Um, uh, what's it called? The, um, oh, 20, it was a 24-track um, tape recorder in a box, basically. Mm -hmm. Great. Your computer in a box, and it was it was a tape machine in a box, um, and it was a 24-track recorder in a 3U box. Uh, had converters on it, so you went in analog, and it was really really good because for the first time I actually heard and played back exactly what I was recording. Didn't have any of the anomalies of tape, you know, you could hear it back, um, and it was fantastic. But my desk driving it, I had bar graphs on it that only went up to about plus 10 or plus 12. The Mackie needed a hell of a level to go into it to get it into the sweet spot of the recorders. So I was having to pump about plus 15 to get this Mackie to really sort of get a good signal's noise ratio. Then on the output of the desk, I was using a computer as my stereo recorder. I had a dedicated computer. I said, right, that's my two-track. Had a little converter board, two-track converter board. That converter, I had to attenuate because the desk was giving it too much level. <laughs> so on the 24 track side, I wasn't sending, you know, I was having a really pump level. Coming, going out of the desk, I was having problems distorting the, 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 the converter because I was sending too much level. And I thought, hang on, these are both, both supposed to be working at zero dBFS. And that's when I realized that the problem is that converters only ran on five volts. So you have to attenuate the signal to get any kind of analog into it. And then you've got to pump it up at the output. So to keep their specifications good and say, oh, we've got 120 dB dynamic range, they have to fudge the, the figures a bit. <laughs> so you get this anomaly that when you're going into some converters. Now, my question on all of this is, if you're analog going into a converter and then you're analog coming back, why are the meters... And digital. Why don't they show the analog signal? Then you know exactly where you are. So if you had a converter that, when you send zero from your desk, also read zero, so it knew where you were, wouldn't that be much better instead of this weird DBFS? <laughs> you know, because I put, I put zero into the converter, and the, the, you know the, the, the meter on the converter is way way down low because it needs more level. So 
I'm going to be producing converters probably next year, which actually work in the analog. Ah, oh, fantastic. So that when you put zero in, the meters will read zero dB, and the converter will do the rest for you. So you can use it just like it was an analog bit of gear, but it's doing your conversion. And on the way back, it will come back the same. They know exactly where you are. It almost so, needs a bit of standardization between, exactly, you know, exactly. between companies. Uh, well, nobody is. Because the problem with the digital guys is they don't understand analog and they don't really understand audio. You know, <laughs> these are digital guys. You know, they live in their digital bubble. And they don't really, you know, really understand what the user wants. And, and they, you know, they are told, well, you just make it the best that you can. And, you know, we have to fudge the figures to, to, you know, to make our product look good. Because the irony of it is, again, in my studio, the only equipment that was noisy was the digital gear. You know, when I use a digital effect like a lexicon or whatever it might be, or a leases, whenever I use a digital reverb and brought it back through the console, the noise through that is far greater than anything the console was producing. Wow, interesting. Oh, it's 120 dB dynamic range, it's this and it's that, you know. So this is one of the problems you have for having the digital, you know. Um, so it's one of the things that I want to address in the future. You know. We do a moving fader system for consoles as well. Uh, fader Mate, which um, acts as a door controller, uh, turns your analog console into a door controller, mm. and it's got moving fade motorized faders on it. So there's lots of things that I'm into at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> that was I'm, I'm pleased that you've touched on them because it was something that I was going to ask you because you you seem really well placed in terms of your experience and your understanding of. Um, the technical side of it and how music operates uh, currently, you, you're yeah. almost perfectly placed to address some of these problems that you're yeah. bringing up. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in a good place. You know, I also do some bass guitar equipment as well, products called Basics. I've um, seen that, yes. Bass preamp system, which my dear friend Tony Visconti is using. Got Neil Murray from Whitesnake. Even got Pino Palladino using it. Oh wow! Know. I mean, he's the uh, yeah. he's the cream yeah. of the crop, isn't he? <laughs> for bass players it basically takes the controls that are on your amp and puts them at your feet so and then all, all the controls light up so when you're on a stage in a dark stage you can actually see what what's on there and all the EQ has been designed specifically for bass players um so yeah that's called basics so yeah i've been to a lot of things <laughs> yeah. um yeah. something i just want to uh finish up on our last couple of things that um, I think we, we touched on this on the phone and it's something that I've had uh, re requested of me via email is that I ask people um, yeah. and obviously there's will be information in your course that will touch on this too but what would you say is the, the single most important thing for say a bedroom recordist um, to do that will uh, take their recordings to the, to the next level? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... If you, if you read my recordings, you know, they just joke to you on the phone, do they, do they, do they? <laughs> what, people, what people don't realise at home is that, again, you look at, you go into a recording studio, you know, they've spent tens of thousands of pounds on acoustics. There's a reason for that. You know, and the reason for that, they don't do it for the good of their health. They do it because they need to do it. That's the basic difference between a recording space and a home space or home environment. You can do a tremendous amount of either damage or good to your sound according to how you treat the environment that you're in. 
And if you're working, you know, I'm looking behind you now, you've got a normal room. They've got quite, you know, reflective surfaces. You put a microphone into that room now and try to record, you know, even close up to the mic, you'd hear the room. It'd be bouncing off the wall. So the first thing that people recording at home need to do, and this is what I say in my course, is you need to treat the room. And I found a lot about this, out about this years and years ago with a company that I was working with sold microphones. And we would go to trade shows and have all our microphones on display and people would actually listen to the microphone. And they would come up and they'd say, oh, oh I'd like to try a microphone out. Fine, yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got a Rode NT1. I just can't get a good vocal sound, you know. And I said, well, actually, a Rode NT1 is a good microphone. Yeah, but I'm thinking about changing it. Why? Just can't get a good sound. Okay, where are you recording? I'm at home. I've got home studio. Okay, um, where's the studio? It's my bedroom or it's an attic room. It's this, it's that. Okay. And what does it consist of? Well, it's a room, you know. Yeah, but, oh, I've got some meg boxes up on the wall. I've got this, this, that. But that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it, you know. I say to them, look, you need to have some acoustic treatments, some relatively good acoustic treatments, stop reflections from the room. Because there's nothing wrong with your microphone. An NT1 is a good microphone. And they go, oh, so you don't want to sell me a microphone? I said, well, to be honest with you, if I sold you a microphone, you'd be no happier than with what you've got, because what you've got is a decent microphone. You've got to look at where you're recording. So what I say to people, the best thing to do to make your, you know, to get better recordings is to improve the space in which you are recording. So when you and say I, good acoustic treatment, you don't necessarily mean expensive acoustic no, treatment. You know, no, you're talking about duvet covers. No, du- well, actual duvets. They're the best thing in the world because if you look at duvets, they're flexible, they're thick, and they're absorbent. So, and they also... You can put them up in a room, hold them up and gaffer tape, whatever you want to do, and you can take them down. But if you put a few duvets up in your room, you'll be amazed at how much you will be able to control the sound of deadly. And if you put them on opposing walls so that the sound reflections aren't able to, um, you know, bounce backwards and forwards, they will get absorbed by the duvet and you will make an enormous amount of difference to the way that you record. That's the first thing that you need to do. Because when I record a vocal... I very rarely put any top sort of EQ on. I don't. I record vocals flat because that's what the microphone does. Most condenser microphones, halfway decent ones, ones costing anything from, say, 80 quid upwards, don't give you a good vocal sound. That's what they're good at, you know. It's what the diaphragm before they're renowned for being good for vocals. So if you've got a good microphone set usually to, you know, obviously um, a cardioid position, and you're reasonably close to the mic, bit of pop shield, good idea, and you've got a good acoustic space, the rest of it pretty well takes care of itself. Now, I do also usually record, again, I do say so, I think, in my tutorials, bit of compression doesn't do any harm when you're recording a vocal. The reason is that the human voice is probably one of the widest dynamic ranges of any instrument. You know, you think of us now, we're talking at an ambient level, we're probably talking 50, 60 dB ambient level. If I shout, I've got to about 90 dB, that's a 30 dB change in level. What instruments do you know that can do that, can change so dramatically? So we sing a verse when we're singing normally, and then we shout when we come to the chorus because we're putting a lot into it, you know, and you get this not only difference in volume, 
but difference in dynamic range, and we can cause distortion. So I always use a compressor, and I use it on the way in because you can't compress afterwards because it's too late, you know. You want to stop that as you go, and you want to make sure that, again, it fits in with the backing, and you can't tell that if you do it afterwards because <laughs> it's too late. So I always, always, always have recorded with a little bit of compression, just enough to keep, you know, the, the vocal range within a decent dynamic range. So the two things that I would advocate to get good vocal recordings are acoustic and also to use, if you uh, know that you've got a strong voice, and you know, good dynamic range, and most people have, use a bit of compression. I think that... Again, I think they're really practical tips, and I—it's something that uh, I've, I've said it at the beginning again. That the, I love about these videos is it sort of demystifies all of that. You know, the, there's so many compression techniques that are on YouTube that that oh. sort of—it's just a—it's a, a you could get lost in a sea of of that. Compression is really simple. <laughs> compression is really simple. Okay, if you're recording most instruments, you need a fast attack and a slow release. It's as simple as that. Fast attack because you want it to catch the sound before it before it gets too loud. If you put a slow attack on it, the sound will go up and then come down, whereas you want it to be even, so you want a fast attack. You want a slow release because if you had a fast release, the sound would suddenly come up before you hit the next word, so you get this pumping effect, what they call pumping. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. Fast attack, slow release. The ratio that you use just depends on how much you want to control it. It's that unsimple. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, a, it's the theme that runs through. All this, you know, oh, well, a 2.2 to 1 compression ratio and da-da-da-da-da, you know. It's, it's really quite simple. Set the maximum amount of level that you want, okay? So that's my ceiling. I don't want it to say go over that sort of signal. And then just set your compression ratio so that it gives you that amount. Won't let it go past. What a compression ratio means is that for every 2 dB in, you only get 1 dB out. For every 3 dB in, you only get 1 dB out. For every 4 dB over that, you only get 1 dB out. So you go, okay, well, yeah, my peaks are 6 dB over where I want them to be. Right, I'll put a 6 to 1 compression ratio on it. You know, it really is simple. All of this stuff is simple, but people make it complicated. <laughs> And absolutely, and you can see why upcoming recording engine or recordists are looking at YouTube and getting confused. <laughs> they do, you know. And of course, the problem with with doors and plugins is what you've got to remember about a door and what you've got to remember about a plugin. They try to be all things to all men. They don't know that you're just trying to record a vocal. They think you might be recording a bassoon or you might be recording a trombone or you might be recording the piano. So they make their programs, their algorithms, whatever they are, to do absolutely everything. And that's the problem with a door. You know, they design doors to be for gaming. They design it for being film post-production. They design it for being jingle production. They design it for being musicians recording at home. So it's trying to be all things to all them. So there's all these feature sets in there that are confusing, you know, that you go, oh, do I need this for that, blah, 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 blah. No, you only need that for gaming, but it doesn't tell you that. So you've got to kind of disseminate all of this information and just get it down to the basics. And that's, again, what I try to do in these tutorials. You know, and you, 
You've got to remember that about a lot of these plugins, a lot of this gear. It's trying to do everything so that you'll go, oh, I only need this one product. But in doing so, it misses the point of maybe the simple thing that you actually want to do. Stops it being really simple. The compressors, the LA2As that we had at Trident Studio were two knobs. One was compression and one was makeup gain. Amazing. That, hey Jude, that heavily compressed piano on Hey Jude is an LA2A turned up. That's it. Two knobs. You know? I mean, yeah, it's 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 a world apart from. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the the plug-in compressors I've seen oh. tutorials on that have got you know they've got 15, 16, 20 oh, yeah. knobs. <laughs> feed forward, feedback, you know, side chain, da da da, you know, all this stuff. I mean, God's sake, just forget it. <laughs> you know, yeah, you can trigger stuff, but for the vast majority of people, you don't need this stuff. You know, this is really getting into the realms of, you know, super, super fine points. But to be honest with you, you don't need all this, whether it's feed forward or feedback, whether it's... Uh, there are, yes, there are different types of compressors. There's VCA and there's photo-optical and, um, you know, that, that, that there's... That, yeah, there's different types of compressors. Yes, I agree with that. And that's, again, in my tutorials, I explain the differences between them. But by and large, they will all do the same thing, you know, Generally speaking, they will do the same thing. You just have to decide which one is best for your particular job. I mean, this is uh, uh, this is it, and this is why I, I mean, from a sort of consumer point of view, I thank you for for putting something like this together because it's, I think it's so important for us, uh, you know, as a relatively young person in in this industry, I. I want to hear from people like yourself and I, I want to learn. And like we said right back at the beginning, I want to go back and know how it was done at the, at the beginning um, because that's a sound that we still crave and there's good yeah. reason why, yeah. that, why we crave that sound. Yeah. And um, it's so important that uh, there is a record of, of um, the way uh, of you communicating your thoughts on this. So yeah, I really appreciate you putting that course together and I think it's a, uh, I just think it's brilliant, and I, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wax on lyrically about all of this in, oh, uh, in fine. the intro and outro. But yeah, very, very kind of you. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is music. We have to remember is is a creative thing. It's a spontaneous thing, and we have to try and capture that in our recordings and all the good recordings that you listen to. Listen to the Stones, you know. I mean, that's just total spontaneity. That's not about recording techniques. That's not about fantastic production. And, you know, I always say that if you've got the right, you know, you've got a good song, you can record it on a cassette deck or you can record it on, you know, the best equipment in the world. If it's not a good song, it ain't going to make it. Production and, and recording techniques do a certain amount to make a good record, but they are not the be all and end all. You have to start with good product to start with. You know, you have to have a good song, good product. You can't polish the proverbial, you know, it's as simple as that. But if you do start with good material, then you can build on that and, you know, you can certainly do a lot. But you can over-egg the pudding so much. You can really over-egg it if you're not careful. I, I think that's very easy to do. I, I know from um, from people I work with that there's there's too many options and there's too much um, yeah. there's too much that you can hold on to, um, you know, takes that you can keep and look back on. And, right. Yeah, and it's, it's very easy to over-egg the pudding. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I think there has been such a huge amount for people to take away and for me to take away from this conversation. I just want to say thank you again for, for coming on to speak to me. 
pleasure. My pleasure. Um, it, yeah, it's been absolutely lovely. Thank you. All right, take care. Speak to you soon. All right, so I'll stop the recording, but it's um. Yeah. Yeah, re- I do genuinely really appreciate it, Malcolm. Like, I, I, it, I really enjoyed it. I but wouldn't I have talking about this stuff, especially the guys like you, because you are the new generation and you're so keen and enthusiastic, which is what I love, you know, it really is. And I want to pass this stuff on to you guys because it is important because it gets lost, you know. And as I said to you before, somebody, you know, when I was down in Devon four, four or five years ago, people said, oh, you should do some videos because all the stuff that you've learned, you know. There's another guy down there, Richard Digby Smith. He'd done all the um, um, Bob Marley and the Whalers. He'd done a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff and all this at, at um, um, oh, what's the studio? Um, oh, I can't think of the studio. Um, anyway, he, he, he was a, he was a, you know an engineer, same sort of age as me. And we come from some of and we both said, you know, we have to put all this stuff down. You know, we sort of shoot the breeze. The people would come and say, hey, you guys, you know, listen to you guys talking about, you know, where you do things and everything else. And, um, uh, you know, it would be great to put all this stuff down. And, and I thought, yeah, I thought we really need to before we get too old or something happens, you know, to just pass this stuff on. And that's what spurred me on to doing the, um, doing the, the, the tutorial. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think that they are they are such a good record, and um, I did. I mean, I keep saying it. I just think I love how simple everything is. That's something that seems to be missing from a lot of um, you know courses and things that are coming out now. Everything's it's just simple, and you explain it in such a simple way. And it's it's so. I mean, obviously, there's technical details as well, which are important to understand. But it it makes. It just makes every it explodes that myth that I said before. It just makes everything like well, it's just this. <laughs> yeah, I know that, that. I got so frustrated looking at YouTube to find it. I thought, right, let's have a look at some of the tutorials. And there's these young, keen, enthusiastic guys, and they're going, yeah, well, you use this plugin, and then you do this, and you do that, and then you tweak this, and then you change that to a sharp curve. And, you know, I just thought, my God, you know, you're just overcomplicating everything, and you're missing out the fundamentals. You're missing out the basic parts of it, you know, because they just don't get it because they haven't grown up in this studio environment, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 that's why I, I you know, I'm, I'm just generally trying to cut through this morass of, of stuff because you look at the forums, you know, if you ever go on gear stuff and things like that, I mean, these guys are so into the equipment and the gear and everything else, you know, and it's unbelievable the minutiae that they talk about, yeah. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I I drop in occasionally, and I try to I try to take everything with a pinch of salt. Um, and uh, you know, and I've got my attitude towards sort of drum kits and drum miking and things like that. It's very, it's it's of it's it's cut from the same cloth of what you're you're talking yeah. about. And um, I've tried to as I've learned more about music production and and engineering, I've tried to approach it with the same attitude. You know, I'm not into to bells and whistles. I'm into what what I know sounds good and. That, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. If, if you can't get a good drum sound with a uh, maximum of six mics, you know, which is only when you're post-miking the racks, you know, you've got one on the floor tom, one on each of the rack toms, say that's three mics, yeah. one on the snare, a couple of overheads and a bass drum mic. If you can't get a good drum sound, we use three mics. I mean, it's just a quick story I'll tell you that, Again, uh, I was recording with Tony. Uh, sorry if I'm keeping your time up. No, no, you're fine. I'm more concerned about keeping your time. Yeah. I love this. Um, we did, um, 
in the morning, I did a big session uh, again with Concertini playing drums. And um, it was, you know, a huge session. And Clem was late, and he turned up. He said, oh, I had trouble parking. You know, he said, I think you've got a, 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 a house kit. You know, Norman was a drummer, Norman Sheffield. He had a Ludwig, Ludwig kit. I said, yeah, there's the house Ludwig kit. So do you mind if I use that? I said, no, that's fine. So he scuffled in, you know. And so he was late, and, and I'd used most of the microphones up. So I had three mics left for drums, which is a snare drum mic, bass drum mic, and one overhead, you know. So we set up the session, and I pulled up the drum mics, brilliant drum sound, absolutely great, did the session, you know, everybody went home. Tony came in in the afternoon, and he saw the mics set up on the drum kit. He said, oh, you, you know, you've got mics set up on the drum kit, and, uh, you know, might as well use that, it's fine. Five hours trying to get a drum set. Whoa! And the difference was the player. Yeah. <laughs> because the difference between people like Clem and all the session musicians, and why us engineers would say, "I'll get Ronnie Barrell or, or Alan White, whoever it might be," you know, um, Charlie Morgan uh, would be because, and it's like um, Herbie Flowers again. Herbie would come in, you'd give him any amp, any bass, and it would sound fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know. And the difference between Clem was that he knew what sound he needed to make from that drum for you to get the right sound up there. So he would lay the stick on the drum according to how the drum would sound to make sure I got the right sound. And he was never, every drum beat sounded the same volume. There was never one beat that wasn't quite the same volume. So he made the kit sound like it you know, should do for me. And yet when you get a player from a band who's not used to playing in a studio, couldn't make that drum kit sound the same way. And that was just a classic, you know, classic instance made me realise just how good these session players are. And it isn't all about their musical ability. It's about the fact, as I say, you could say to Herbie, I want a clicky-type bass. And he'd immediately have a listen to the track, you know what you meant, and you'd come up with exactly the right sound. Yeah. I had this. Uh, I had the same conversation with um, with a, a, an artist that I'm working with at the moment, and uh, he he'd employed a, a friend of his who's I, I, I'm assuming is more of a band drummer to do the to do some drums for him, and it wasn't it just wasn't working right, and and that's why he came to me to do it, and I'm obviously not um, you know this isn't in any way about how good I am at it, but we we were talking about how you know I've done. I've done a lot of this stuff and and you, you begin to realise that playing live and playing in the studio are completely different oh, beasts. Totally different things. Absolutely they are. Because when you're live, you want your bass drum as flappy as possible and to really just get out there. Yeah. Whereas the studio, it's got to be tight and controlled. That's the last thing you want, you know? And a lot of drummers aren't happy playing like that, you know? And again, they hit the bass drum way too hard for the studio. So it's a completely different, completely different thing playing in the studio than it is. And a lot of drum, a lot of musicians indeed don't like, you know, a lot of musicians have said, I hate doing studio work. You know, I much prefer to play live because everything's under the microscope. Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. You know, every little fault you make, it really shows up the good players from the bad players, whereas you get away with it on stage and then you get to, you know, a guitarist, you get to the studio and you say, you know, you've been playing that, you know, E flat, you should have been playing an E major. You know, you've been playing it all. I never realised until I heard the playback. You yeah. Know? You I could, with it on stage. 
That's it. You can gloss over those mistakes live. They're sort of part of the atmosphere. Whereas, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it, it's quite a it's quite a journey to becoming a good uh, good recording player. It's a uh, you oh, know, it is. And, and it's it's not a thing that you know everybody likes, you know, because of the sterility of it, if you like, and the fact that you're under a microscope. I mean, there's a lot of musicians who are intimidated, and that's again why, as an engineer, your job is to make the studio as homely a place as possible to make them feel comfortable. And one thing I say again in my tutorials, you know, if you listen to the one about uh, actually being a recording engineer, I say the most important thing is a good headphone mix. Because if you make, if, if the musicians come into the studio and they've got a good headphone mix, they immediately put at ease. Whereas if they're straight up, just can't hear the bass, I can't hear the bass man, and the engineer's not listening and he's doing something else, you know, he's getting the sound on the guitar and he's not listening, then, you know, the drummer or the bass player is not having it. It feels very ill at ease. It doesn't feel right. And so when they go to record, if it's not being addressed, they're just unhappy. And then they'll start to criticise the engineer or criticise the song. Or it just makes you unhappy. Whereas if you say, oh, God, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I can play for this. What a difference that makes. Yeah. So to me, headphone mix is the most important thing you do. A lot of engineers don't get that. They're more in their own little world of, oh, I've got to get, what about my headphones? Don't worry about that, I'm just getting the drum sound. Don't worry about that. Well, you're getting the drum sound, but the drum sound, the drum is not giving you the best because his headphones aren't right. <laughs> common sense, isn't it, Joe? It common. really is, it really is. I've, I have, honestly, I've learned so much speaking to you over the well, this conversation and the, the conversation we had the other day. It's been, um, it's, uh, I'm just really grateful for you giving me your time and, uh, you know, I love it, absolutely love it. My pleasure, my pleasure. And, you know, I, I know it's going to someone who's going to appreciate it, which really pleases me as well, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy. More Fantastic. Than happy. So there we have it, Malcolm Toft. Um, as usual, I hope that you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. I'm going to say it once again, Malcolm is such a lovely guy and is so keen to impart his knowledge um, that he's amassed over his years um, to the sort of audio world. So do go and check out his website, allaboutrecording.com and buy that course for £15. I That is correct, £15, one five. I've spent 10 times that on internet courses <laughs> um, that is just an absolute bargain and for what you get it's unbelievable so don't even hesitate if you get one piece of information from that course for 15 pounds that is an absolute bargain it costs more for a, a, an hour-long private lesson with somebody that's insane I, I can't tell you how cheap that is um i bought it i bought it before i'd even recorded this podcast and it's fantastic just go and buy it okay so I'm very excited about this year. I've got a huge amount of exciting guests lined up for you. Next episode will hopefully be with Shell Talmy, who is a legendary 1960s producer, produced The Kinks and The Who um, and cult band The Creation. Um, I'm saying hopefully because I'm recording this before I've actually spoken to Shell. I'm actually due to speak to him tonight. Um but I, and I hope that it obviously all goes swimmingly, so I'm assuming that it's going to, going to be Shell. Um, and I have a, a lot of other amazing guests lined up for this year. Uh, I'm hopefully going to do a series on 60s recording studios with a uh, 
sort of music journalist um, who is an expert on this subject. I've got some more producers lined up and a couple of mastering engineers, all sorts of stuff. I don't want to give away the game too much, but I'm very excited about where this year is going to go. Um, Please do spread the word about the podcast to everybody and anybody if you're enjoying what you're hearing. And I implore you to take the time to put a a little review up on Apple Podcasts if you can. You don't even have to write anything. Just click the stars button. Um, Anything like that really helps uh, sort of lift the awareness for this podcast. Um, Also want to say that you can get in contact with me if you like. Um, My email address is joe at allyouneedisdrums.com or there's a contact form on my website which is allyouneedisdrums.com. Also on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Um, and I'm on Facebook as too, uh, Facebook too, but I don't know if anybody uses that as much these days for music. Um, I tend to do all my posting on Instagram. Anyway, please do feel free to get in contact with me. I love hearing from you. I love guest suggestions. I love feedback. I just like hearing from the people that listen to this podcast, um, wherever you are in the world. Um, so yes, please do not do not hesitate to get in contact with me. Um, Apologise that my voice is a little bit hoarse on these intros and outros today because I've been on a Zoom meeting this morning and uh, I am one of those people who struggles to control the volume of his voice on Zoom. Um, So I've managed to make my throat hoarse. (laughs) Um, Anyway, uh, that just leaves me to say thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for supplying the intro and outro music for this podcast and another good friend of mine, David Henshaw, for the beautiful artwork that he supplies for me every couple of weeks. Um, and here's to a fantastic 2021. I will see you in a couple of weeks, hopefully with Shell Tell Me. Goodbye. Goodbye.